a creator, innovator, outsider, and leader. These are just some of the words that I took away during my conversation with Anders Jones. Anders is the CEO and co-founder of Facet Wealth. Facet is a company that is changing the landscape of investment management by providing access to high-quality financial planning to all households. Anders comes from a background of innovation within the startup world after being a part of a company called LiveRamp and going through the sale of the company. He spent time investing and managing other startups after LiveRamp. He has now taken the lessons learned from these experiences to start in another endeavor and bring those lessons from outside the industry into our industry. And today, we talked to him about everything from tech to financial services to help open our eyes to a different perspective. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Anders, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate taking a, a few minutes out of your day. Matt, it's great to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, y'all, y'all are uh, y'all are growing there. We were just talking before. You're uh, you're now over a hundred people, um, which is which is remarkable. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's uh, every day is an adventure in, in startup life. But uh, you know, since since founding the company about four years ago, um, you know, we've had a really nice growth trajectory. And uh, you know, the the good news is it means that we're we get to help a lot of people who need the help. So uh, feeling good about it. Yeah, I'm excited about this conversation. We had one of uh, your your other co-founders, Brent Weiss, on uh, before yeah. as well, and. Uh, as I told him, I'm a huge fan of what y'all are doing, so I love to be able to talk about it. Um, but before we get into that, there's two things uh, that you sent over, uh, and I called you. I, I call you an outsider because you have zero zero experience in the financial services space. Don't take offense to that. It's you're now yeah. an insider. You're now part of the clan, whether you like hopefully, it or not. Hopefully, always have one foot outside. Right? <laughs> that actually allows you to innovate. That allows you to yeah. innovate for sure. Exactly. Um, but tell me about this. So you used to be a, uh, and I also read up that you own a horse. You used to be a really avid horseback rider. Now, is this like, is this like race horses or, or is it uh, equestrian type racing or, or uh, horseback riding? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I didn't know we were going to spend time on this. Uh, <laughs> uh, jumpers. So, uh, so like, you know, in a ring, uh, r- riding around, uh, j- jumping over stuff. I love uh, that. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. I did it when I was growing up, and uh, I was really, really serious about it through college. And then, um, you know, when when I graduated, uh, you know, the real world hit, and um, and and so I wasn't that. Basically, stopped stopped competing, and then actually, funny thing, kind of got back into it a little bit this summer, um, and and I realized that it's like you, you can either be all in or all out, and it's hard to do it with kind of you know one one foot in, one foot one foot out. So um, we'll probably probably wait to to dial that back up again yeah that's awesome yeah. I, I i understand the one foot in and one foot out because i uh i played high school baseball my whole life and then yeah. stopped in college graduated from college and two years after graduating some guys were like let's go play in a men's baseball league i'm like sure and i get out there yeah. i haven't swung a bat in you know six years seven years and it it's you can't you can't just go back into it. it's not like riding a bike right yeah, yeah. It, it you gotta spend quality time on that so i can relate um now the other thing that I know you didn't think we were going to talk about, but I just wanted to bring up and ask you about Mandarin. How long yeah. did it take you to learn? And do you speak it fluently? Um, I, so I used to. It's been a while. So so I went to high school in Boston, and uh, they there was a uh, teacher there. They actually had hired him as a geography teacher, and his name was Mr. Yang. And um, after a couple years uh, as a geography teacher, he was like, "Hey, can I can I teach like intro to?" 
Chinese. And, uh, and so they said, yeah. And so then that was a couple of years before I showed up. And then, and so I, I was able to take it for three years in, uh, in high school. Um, and then, uh, uh, then in, uh, in college they, they offered it. So I took four years there. So, um, you know, I, I used to be able to speak it really well. Uh, I'm pretty rusty right now. It's been probably 10 years since I've really done anything serious. And I always used to laugh and say, I'm basically like an illiterate Chinese person because I can't read it or write it, but, uh, but I can speak it. So. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, good. Well, now we'll get into the stuff that you knew we were going to talk about. So I, I won't throw that off on, uh, anymore, but, um, yeah. you really want to just kind of dive into, yeah, really the background of Facet a little bit, uh, where you see the industry and, and, you know, given your venture background and your startup background, I think you can provide a lot of insight in terms of innovation, et cetera. Uh, yeah. and, and I like to kind of start these conversations and end these conversations in a same, a similar way with all of our guests, but, uh, to kind of provide some perspective and, and cross-reference, but, uh, mm-hmm. I want to start simple from your perspective, you know, Coming into this industry now for four years, what is your vision or what is your kind of state of the union of the RIA industry, right? What would be those two or three things that you see in this industry uh, and you would talk about in a state of the union type speech? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the industry is in a really interesting time right now. And I think one of the things that attracted me to it in the first place was that there are a lot of trends um, that are that are changing in, in pretty significant ways. Um, and you know, anytime that there's there's a lot of, of of change in an industry, there's always opportunity to do things better and um, and to innovate. And so, um, you know, if I had to sort of pick three bullet points about what's happening in the industry right now, I would say it's uh, professionalization uh, of, of firms that are basically moving away from sort of you know smaller practices to much more professionally run businesses. Um, uh, specialization, uh, so thinking about uh, advisors not trying to be all things to all people and instead really finding their niche. Um, and then last is consolidation. Um, and, and I don't think that that one is, is sort of any, um, you know, any, any big, uh, uh, surprise, but, you know, basically there's a bunch of sort of the, the, an emergence of a, a bunch of, uh, sort of super regional and national RIAs, um, you know, that are, that are, you know, slowly but surely, or in some cases quickly, uh, gobbling up smaller firms, um, and building, you know, building much bigger presences. And then I think, you know, you also have, um, and, and those are sort of like natural industry uh, things. You could look to, to other industries to see how, um, you know, how, how they've evolved. And, and there's a lot of parallels there. I always think about uh, the healthcare industry as kind of an interesting analogy. So if you think about, um, you know, in the 1800s, you had like the snake oil salesman, and that might have been, uh, you know, bond brokers in the 1970s for us. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then you, uh, you know, right now we're probably somewhere in like the village doctor phase of like the 1950s and 1960s, where you have people that are basically differentiated by their geography, um, more than anything else. And they're, and they're also generalists. So, uh, you know, they're dealing with 80% of people's healthcare issues, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, 80% of their clients are within 25 miles of them. Um, and I think what we're starting to see is this this emergence of uh, sort of more of like more of like the the quote unquote medical system, right? So like uh, you know I live in Baltimore, fastest headquartered in Baltimore. Um, doctors here are associated with either Johns Hopkins or University of Maryland. 
and that's basically it. And so, uh, so I can see a world in the future where you basically have a lot of, um, uh, you know, these sort of larger organizations that, uh, that people are associated with. Uh, and, and that that's really uh, the, the bulk of, of where advisors um, spend time. So, um, you know, it's certainly not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of an interesting one to think of. And then the last thing I'll say is just there are other things that are happening, too, that are specific to financial services. So um, trends around pricing changes or, or sort of how price how prices are are determined. Uh, so movement away from the commission based model, um, likely some movement away from the AUM model towards more of a flat fee or subscription or hourly pricing um, changes in value props. So moving away from asset management to, uh, to more financial planning. Um, you know, these are all things that are, that are going to take a long time to change, but I think those, those shifts are well underway. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to talk on that pricing side for a second. And then also I want to talk on the professionalism side. Uh, and, and let's start on kind of the professionalizing the business. I call it kind of businessizing the business and kind of moving from the mom and pop. How how are you seeing for because you guys work with a lot of RIAs you work with a lot of advisors how are yeah. you seeing that kind of infiltrate into these businesses like what is that to to the to the advisor listening and it's like what does that mean what does that mean when you say that uh, from your standpoint so um, so it's really <clears throat> it's it's thinking about. Um, how uh, how to run a business instead of just service clients, and so um, you know it, we, we talk to advisors all the time. So you know the, the thirty second, not even ten second commercial on Facet is that we partner with advisors to identify clients that aren't a great fit for them, uh, and then move those clients over to us. Um, and so as a result, we we train we we talk to a ton of of advisors. Um, and it is amazing uh, the number of advisors that don't actually um, think about what it costs them to service a client, right? So they just think about it in terms of like, all right, I'm going to gather assets, uh, I'm going to generate revenue, and then you know, a client is a client is a client. Um, you know, obviously, I like million dollar clients because I can make more money off of them. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'll still spend time with a client that has two hundred thousand dollars. And there's very little understanding of of this idea of like you know gross margin, where you know if you're spending uh, six hours of time with a million dollar client, six hours of time with a two hundred thousand dollar client, um, there's a very significant economic difference in those client relationships uh, that that a lot of advisors don't really uh, uh, grasp. I think zooming out, there's some just business process things as well, right? Everyone has a sort of unique planning process. Some are, um, are are more sort of fleshed out than others. Um, uh, thinking about technology, I'm sure we're going to get into this, but you know the technology that uh, that, that uh, advisors use. Uh, there's it can be anything from spreadsheets all the way up to you know very sophisticated tech stack. Um, and there are a lot of decisions, sort of infrastructure decisions that advisors need to make in order to really set themselves up for success in the long run. Uh, and I think that more and more there's an acknowledgement that time spent thinking about those things 
and and like getting smart as business owners, not just as financial advisors, um, is uh, is is time well spent. So I, I'd say that's sort of the, the high level of of what we see. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think what you know from our perspective, I think what we've been seeing as we talk to other RIAs is very similar, right? And I think that it's a matter of making that investment into people that are doing that thought, right? Whether you want to do it as the founder. But you're separating you're separating uh, managing clients and running the business, and and you're starting to find that when people businessize their business, they're they're doing one or the other. They're not doing both, so that they can do one really well. Um, yeah. And and it becomes harder and harder as you continue to grow to be able to do both. Uh, and so you either bring in people to do that for you and help you with that, or or you do it yourself and you get some advisors to manage the assets. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a really interesting stat, and this is sort of one of the things when we started Facet, one of these sort of aha moments for us was um, if you look at advisor efficiency, and there's a lot of different ways to measure this, but, you know, one way is like how many clients can an advisor service? Um, in 2009, it was about 75 clients per advisor. Uh, and in 2019, it's about 75 clients per advisor. So that hasn't changed at all. Meanwhile, advisor margins have risen on average by about 30%. So uh, advisors are making more money without actually optimizing anything in their business. And so, you know, that's, I, I, I'm pretty certain you can attribute all that back to uh, market appreciation um, on, their, on their asset base. And so what that tells me is that when the market, when there is a downturn, which, you know, inevitably there will be, um, and probably pretty soon, just based on sort of some of the things we're seeing, um, you know, th- there's going to be a lot of, uh, of pain for advisors that haven't focused on running a better business, mm-hmm. um, that haven't focused on sort of that next level of management and, uh, and, uh, and, and process. This is, this is definitely an industry where if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, uh, and the, in the market, the, you know, rising tide, you know, lifts all boats and so, uh, or lifts all ships or whatever the same may be. Um, and I think that's where they are. And, and I want to touch on pricing for a second and we'll, I, this is a, we're, uh, foreshadowing into something that we're going to talk about on buy sell, but yeah. you mentioned that the pricing model is changing and, uh, I, I'd be interested to know what the appetite of advisors is to changing that from your perspective and yeah. and then and then how the, that's received by clients because i know that y'all i believe y'all have a different pricing model than than traditional and so uh i'd love to hear that yeah for sure so so let me let me um let me go to my soapbox for a second so i have never thought that the aum based pricing model makes sense at the retail level um for advisors that are leading they're sort of leading their value prop with uh financial planning um the you know that is a professional service it's not uh it's not money management and so um you know if i have uh two hundred thousand dollars and i do a great job at work and get a bonus now i have two hundred fifty thousand dollars um why should i give my advisor an extra five hundred dollars to basically do the same set of things for me that uh, he or she was doing um you know before i got that bonus i just i i, I think that there's a fundamental conflict in that in that model um and so uh, you know, it's been great for advisors, right? Because I think, especially um, you know, those that uh, outsource investment management or have you know fairly um, you know standard or or simpler models uh, that they can that they put clients in. You know, there's not a ton of work that goes into the asset management side of the business. 
Um, but you know, they're, they're able to make uh, a lot of money doing that. Um, and so, and, and, you know, clients like it because half the time they don't realize they're paying anything. It just gets deducted from the account. It's, you know, it's a good, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a well-designed, uh, pricing system by the industry, uh, for the industry. Um, and so, you know, you asked our advisors going to change, I, you know, I think a lot of the more traditional advisors are probably not too excited about moving away from that model because it's a very profitable one. Um, but that being said, I think that uh, as there are more entrants in the market that are uh, tying costs to value received by the client, um, it, it clients and, and consumers are just going to wake up. So, you know, Facet was out there pretty early on with uh, with our subscription-based pricing. Um, XYPN is basically an entire platform to help uh, advisors build uh, subscription-based or, or flat-fee-based uh, uh, pricing models. Um, I forget, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the tech company, the, the same uh, guys who do XYPN. Um, uh, Advice Pay? It, Advice pay. That's it. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Um, you know that that's a whole plat. That that's a whole tech company to enable other advisors to to uh, bill by um, by uh, a subscription. And then now you start seeing Schwab, um, you know, putting their their stake in the ground and offering a subscription based uh, uh, offering as well. So. I think the world is moving in that direction. I think, you know, as uh, people in the financial services world, we all believe in efficient markets. And I think sooner or later, um, you know, there's going to be a combination of transparency on the consumer side um, and also just enough people doing it on the advisor side that it will become the norm. I don't think it's going to change overnight. I think we're looking probably five, 10 years before we see sort of like a majority of people not charging based on assets. Um and I will say, I think there's also uh, instances where it does make sense to charge based on assets. I mean, there are uh, managers that truly do add value um, on the investment side, and you know, they they traffic in uh, managing money, and like that's you know, then being able to share in some of that upside makes sense. But again, at the retail level, um, for a financial planning led offering, I just I, I don't see it. Yeah. And, and and does it get to where it's like a la carte, right? So you're just basically having a, a set of services that you're you're charging for, and if you want this, it's an extra. It, it, it's like a it's it's kind of like a Salesforce SaaS model in some aspects as well, where you have the base and then you add on. Yeah, I mean, so so if you break it down to its component parts, right? I mean, really, what you're doing if you're doing financial planning for someone, you're basically selling your time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in that sense, you know, you look very much like an accountant or a lawyer um, or any sort of you know professional services uh, organization or, or professional services um, uh, 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 professional. Um, and so, then I think in that sense, it it makes sense to start thinking about in terms of an hour hourly cost. Um, how you want to package that up and sell it. Um, you know, at Facet, we do an annual subscription that sort of aggregates. We, we basically know of all the things we do for a client when we onboard them, you know, we look at a, a, an individual client's financial life. We see, okay, here are the seven things that you really need help with. We know on the back end what it costs us to to provide that service in terms of time, and then we can price it accordingly, but we bundle it as an annual package. Um, you know, or, you know, there's, there's uh, success stories out there about folks that are just saying, Hey, you know, I charge $250 an hour and, you know, I think this is going to take me 10 hours and, you know, I'll, then that work will be done for you. Um, you know, or they do it on more of a deliverable basis. And that looks more sort of like, you know, trust in a state is a good example of that where, um, you know, I just updated my will not too long ago. And it was like, this was the, this was the, the, the cost for the deliverable. Mm -hmm. So a lot of ways to do it, but. Ultimately, I think the unit that you're looking at is the time 
and and cost of the time to deliver that service, whatever it may be. Does that does that pricing model? I I, I know we're going down a rabbit hole here, which I'm okay yeah. with. But does that pricing model, in your mind, uh, make the relationship more a transaction as opposed to a relationship? Because it's basically like, all right, I mean, I mean, that's. Um, does it does it change the frame of the relationship a little bit? You think? Um, I think it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it puts the onus on the advisor to continue to show value, uh, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the I, I would argue that uh, you know the advisor that's managing money um, and you know talks to a client every two years is probably not earning their fee. Um, you know, a facet, we bill our clients either monthly or quarterly, depending on, uh, you know, sort of what the individual client situation is. But we view that billing cycle as basically uh, an opportunity for the client to evaluate how much value we're providing them. And so it does. I mean, it certainly sets a high bar for us of how how are we helping people in their everyday financial lives? Um, and that's not, you know, daily check-in calls to, you know, ask, uh, you know, how many lattes you bought at Starbucks, but it's, um, you know, it, it does sort of incentivize you as an advisor to start thinking about, okay, how am I, what are the everyday things that I'm helping my clients with? Um, and I think, you know, in, in a client centric company, that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting, and, and I think that the idea behind fees is a real, it's a real question, right? I mean, with with, with Schwab bringing trading costs, everybody bringing trading costs down to zero. I, I mean, now you're you're trying to figure out what your value is and how are you valuing and, and able to show your worth. Um, mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see if the SaaS model or the the su- service subscription based model is what is the answer, or is it the answer that you continue to deliver a one percent fee, but you're adding in so much other aspects of value inside that fee where there's not an additional aspect of it, right? Where the baseline is charging on assets, but they get X, Y, Z, uh, and ABC as part of that fee um, as well, based on asset size and needs, et cetera. Uh, however it turns out, I, I think that there's some, uh, it will be interesting to see how pricing plays out. I, uh, I, I want to I circle back because I, I know you gave a 10 second kind of overview of facet, but you know, Y'all are y'all are solving trying to solve one of the biggest problems I see in the industry, and that is providing access to quality financial planning to everybody, to the masses, right? To the people that the industry has deemed not worthy. Uh, from that standpoint, uh, yeah. which I think that they are the most worthy and most in need of of the help. Um, and it's been a it's been a neglected market in my mind. Uh, and and y'all are trying to solve that. What led you down that path? Um, so there are there are a lot of uh, a, a lot of threads to pull on here, but um, you know when when we first started the company uh, in twenty late twenty fifteen early twenty sixteen, um, I'd been looking at sort of what was going on with the uh, the rise of the robo advisors. This was right around the time when like Wealthfront and Betterment and Personal Capital got a huge venture funding checks, and you know when you really um, when you really sort of dug into it and looked at um, the value they were providing. I mean, they were basically just commoditizing asset management. And so then the question became, is that really what people needed? Um, you know, if that was the case, uh, why, why were there so many um, human financial advisors out there? And then um, the big aha moment for us was when uh, the DOL rule came out. 
And uh, and the pushback from the industry was, well, if you pass this, you're going to have like something like 8 million households lose their advisor relationship because the advisor literally can't afford to both service them and act in their best interests. And so that was like, okay, there's definitely an opportunity here. This is a cost problem. Um, and so and so that's really sort of been the basis of Facet and, and sort of how we designed uh, our whole company is around how do we focus first and foremost on minimizing costs to provide high quality service to the end client. Um, and so we don't sacrifice what the client's getting, uh, but we really innovate on through you know technology, process, and people um, to 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 really lower that cost. And so that's what we did. And so you know we talked a little bit about advisor efficiency measured by uh, number of clients per advisor. So if the industry average is seventy five. Ours are closer to 250, um, and so we've built a bunch of tech, and and we we are totally proprietary. We have a team of uh, of software developers that that build all this stuff. But you know, we really look at it as the advisor's highest and best use is time spent with the client. Um, it's not uh, you know moving data around or building reports or anything like that. That's stuff that can all be automated. But the one thing that you can't commoditize is the human-to-human relationship that a CFP can build with a with a client. So the tech that we have really focuses on taking all of the prep and wrap-up time uh, that an advisor spends getting ready for a client meeting and minimizing that, automating most of it, and then um, and then basically maximizing the time the time that the advisor gets to spend in front of the client. And so that, that that's a great segue into kind of technology, right? What is the role y'all built proprietary technology? You know, we we've talked about the technology that y'all use and and, and what we've used uh, as well. What is the role of technology within a financial advisory firm, right? I, I'd love to learn more about how you, know, you alluded to it a little bit, how y'all are using tech, but then take a step out. And as you see these RIAs, how can they be better users of technology? And what is the role that it plays in their firm? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I have a I have a lot of thoughts here, but um, you know, with limited time, so uh, but you know, I think that there's um, I think that talking about tech in a vacuum is a mistake, right? Tech should enable a great uh, client experience by bringing the advisor closer to the client, right? Tech should enable that human relationship, not replace it. Um, and so, I think that that's just the core philosophy that a lot of uh, advisors need to need to embrace that. Um, you know, they're there and the client is paying the money uh, because of who they are, not because of their ability to choose one tech platform over another. Um, so that's point number one. I think point number two is um, you have to design your planning process uh, before you can plug the technology into it. So, um, you know, so some of the the big mistakes that we see when we're talking to advisors who you know, have gone out and bought, you know, 10 different uh, pieces of software that they think are going to optimize and make their uh, make their practices better um, is that they haven't sat down and said, OK, how are these how do these all fit together uh, for my unique client experience? And this is where I think actually wealth tech is doing advisors a bit of a disservice because I think there are a lot of companies out there. There's a saying in Silicon Valley that um, that's a feature masquerading as a product that's masquerading as a company. And I think that there are a lot of companies out there that sort of fall into that category. Um, and you know, if you think about the median advisor has 46 million uh, in AUM, so we'll be generous and say that that's a $500,000 revenue business. That puts them probably in the bottom quartile of small business in America. That's not. We should not expect them to be uh, 
tech experts, right? Nor should we expect them to have the sophistication to uh, integrate all of those platforms together in a way that matches what they do perfectly. So um, I actually see a lot of, uh, this is going a little bit on a tangent here, but you know, I see a lot of uh, consolidation coming in the, in the wealth tech space. And actually an interesting note on that is uh, venture funding in wealth tech is down about 50% in 2019 from where it was in 2018. Um, so, you know, if you look at investment in general, uh, into the space, it's actually decreasing while at the same time venture it, venture deals and venture volume is at like an all time high right now. Hmm. Um, anyway, sorry, I just took us down down a little bit. No, right? that's good. Yeah. What what from your perspective? Because I mean, you spent some time in the venture world. Why? Yeah. Um, is it because of that saying that you're saying from from uh, uh, from Silicon Valley? What is that rationale that you're seeing of why it's down fifty percent? in wealth tech versus uh, VC funding is just on a rise right now in other industries? So my hunch on this is, um, is that uh, distribution is really hard um, for a lot of these companies. You know, I think, um, you know, if you look at the company, like the massive companies that sell into the independent advisor space, you basically have uh, the custodians, which have like all the pipes laid and, and they're also utility, right? So it's like, they, you know, you, you have to have a custodian. And so, um, you know, that, that's kind of a, a no-brainer. Um, Investnet has done a really nice job, and Orion's done a really nice job. But they spend tons of money on sales and marketing, and so I think um, you know. I think if you if you look at some of these other these other companies, the tech is is good, um, but the challenge is you know getting in front of advisors, basically making the sale to a small business, uh, which is probably the hardest sale you can possibly make as a venture back company because they the buying. Um, you know, the, the, the buying behavior is, is like that of an enterprise, but the ticket size is like that of an individual. So, you know, that's a, that's challenging. Um, and then also the integration piece, right? So, um, you know, so not being integrated with other platforms, um, and, uh, and, and basically like, Hey, you know, I'm a piece of a puzzle, but you need to figure out the rest of the puzzle. That's a hard, uh, I think that's a hard, hard sell for, uh, for a lot of these folks. So it, it just as a, again, this is not validated, but just sort of as I look on, look on the landscape and, um, and, and sort of see what's going on, I see a lot of consolidation coming. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting perspective. And I think that that is the challenge from being in an advisor seat to, um, to also being on the technology side as well is that a lot of the technologies are just yet another login, another platform, another thing that you have to worry about uh, that, yeah. that is a desired silver bullet for the advisor, but actually is a hamper or um, hindrance to their ability to better serve their clients because it's not fully integrated. Nobody's taking a look at the processes of an advisor, the integrations that are needed, the core technologies they use, and then how do you bring them together to actually create efficiency as opposed to here's just another tool, right? Here's another yeah. tool that you can use. Uh, that's very cool and slick. Yeah. You want, my, you want my non-obvious prediction for uh, for what the world looks like five years from now? I'd love it. Uh, I think the custodians become tech companies. Uh, elaborate. I mean, I'm not going to let you just go and say that and then not go from there. <laughs> so, I, so, so if you if you sort of buy into my my argument that you need to have um, you need to marry process with tech, right? And then also integrations and distribution is hard. Then who's best set up to, to sort of handle all that? It's the custodians. Number one, they can put together a full stack 
tech offering. You look at like Fidelity buying eMoney, and you know, um, and I think they've done a couple other acquisitions. You know, they're starting to move in that direction. Um, and then you look at uh, then you look at sort of their practice management and business consulting arms, which are very robust and actually have a lot of great content and material out there for um, for individual advisors. It'd be very easy to sort of marry the two and say, okay, here's what our tech stack looks like. Here's what uh, our sort of optimal business process that ties back to that tech stack looks like. Um, you know. Uh, the, 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 this is sort of both both process and tech packaged all as one. And of course, they've already got the distribution. Um, and you know, they're, if you think about sort of how their business models are evolving, we saw the commission-free trades is is now a thing. Um, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if asset-based uh, pricing at the at the custody level is you know is challenged in the future. And so, you know, why not charge a a subscription? Um, you know, services plus software uh, fee to advisors um, and, you know, really help them solve a problem in their business. So, so. I, uh, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm listening to this and, 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 and smiling in, in the sense that I am in a complete agreement with that and something that yeah. uh, actually came up uh, and I discussed with um, someone from one of those large custodians at a round table that we hosted recently. Uh, because you ultimately think about it as an RIA and a custodian, your custodian is a partner, right? They're a partner, you need yeah. them. Um, and asset managers like State Street and BlackRock are partners because they're ETF providers. As an RIA, we're forcing all of these people to lower their fees to zero and face a margin compression challenge. Figure out how to make profit on a yeah. lesser mar on lesser lesser revenues. All right, go figure that out on yourself. By yeah. while us over here, we're going to keep our revenues the same. We're going to keep our fees the same, and we're going to see margins increase as a partnership that ultimately comes to a head. And yeah. uh, and custodians are going to have to figure out what to do. And the best route to go is a technology uh, avenue. Now, the only question that is uh, is there is that they have to come together as custodians because you have to think of multi custodial and all that type of stuff. Uh, yeah. And I think there has to be some sort of a collaboration amongst them, but I, I'm in complete agreement um, with you. Um, I want to ask two more questions before we get into buy sell, and I, and yeah. I because I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, I you've been in the industry within technology companies for for a good bit, and now you're in financial services. What lessons can you bring, or do you think you can uh, that financial advisors can learn from from your history with startups and technology companies? Uh, mm -hmm. that, that you think advisors can learn from, from your experiences there? Yeah, so I mean, this one's pretty simple, but I would say it's, it's one, one phrase, um, unit economics. Um, and this kind of gets back to an earlier point that I made, which is, uh, you know, it's shocking to me how few advisors actually understand what their client profitability line is. Like, at what point are they making money or losing money every time they, they pick up the phone to talk to someone? Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of discussion around segmentation and figuring out who your best served clients are and that sort of thing. But it's like any of the stuff that we're talking about around, um, you know, process changes, around uh, adding new technology, none of that makes sense unless you understand um, exactly how much money you're making off of a client uh, after, you, after you subtract your expenses. Um, and so it's, I mean, it sounds basic, but, but I think it's really important. The corollary there is that there are a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that don't know how to do that either. Um, <laughs> you know, look at WeWork as an example, 
uh, you know, they've been upside down for a long time and, you know, they, 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 they had an interesting hype, but you know, that we're seeing the tide go out on that one. Um, and even a lot of these successful public companies, right. I mean, the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, uh, they're making a bet that they can go upside down in your economics. Um, and, but, you know, make up for it in growth. Um, and, uh, and, you know, to a certain extent, that's not totally wrong because you basically between Uber and Lyft, you're going to have one winner. And so, you know, the market's betting on one or the other that is, is going to win. And so it's okay to go negative for a while if ultimately you own the whole market. Financial services is totally different where, um, you know, there's, uh, there's what, uh, 30,000 uh, independent RIAs out there. There's hundreds of thousands of, uh, of individual financial advisors. So it's not a winner take all market. So it's really a, like you have to know your own individual business really, really well uh, in order to, to make money on it. You can't go negative with the hope of capturing the whole market because that'll never happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, that is a, that is a fair lesson to be learned that I think you're going to, people are going to learn the hard way. They're going to learn one way or the other. They're going to learn the hard way or they're going to learn it uh, before that. Um, all yeah. right. So last question that I ask everybody, and we, you, you kind of alluded to it. You said five years. I'm going to take your crystal ball out even five more years and say, where do you see the industry sitting, you know, sitting in your seat today? Where is the industry in 10 years in your mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've, I've kind of dropped hints in here uh, all along, but I would say um, in general, uh, a, a much fewer number of, of uh, advisors, meaning firms out there. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. Um, I think that um, I actually am, am hopeful that we as an industry will figure out how to how to help a lot more people. Um, you know, everyone talks about moving up market and going high net worth and, you know, you want your folks to be on wealthier clients. I think that there are going to be companies and innovators that figure out how to help folks, um, you know, as you said, that need the most help. Right. And so, you know, facet, our sort of minimum that we can help is someone who has like, you know, $70,000 of income or $70,000 of assets. You know, I'm very committed to uh, continuing to innovate on our tech so we can go further and further down market and help someone with $25,000. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big enough market. I, you know, I think there are going to be other companies that, um, you know, that jump in and do that as well. And, and I'm really hopeful that, that we figure something out. And then I do think pricing is going to be different. I, I think pricing will be, um, you know, s- subscription or hourly based and very much tied to, uh, to value that's, uh, that's received. Um, so that, those would be my, my kind of big three. I like it. I like it. Um, and, I, and I think that there's a lot of um, the industry. If you think that the industry is not going to change, then you're foolish. Uh, the industry will be different in 10 years than it is today, just with the innovation that's happening. Um, all right, let's move into my buy sell, uh, our buy sell segment, which is just our kind yeah. of uh, ability of bringing CNBC kind of on the show um, for some sense. Uh, four, four statements buy or sell, buy, you agree, sell, you disagree. And give a give a quick brief reason of why one way or the other. Yep. So, first one over the next five years, I, I think I know we're going to go with this one. I didn't mean to do this. Uh, over the next five years, the gap between large RIAs and small RIAs will grow drastically, ultimately causing it hard for smaller RIAs to compete. Uh, so, so buy with an asterisk. I don't think it's going to be hard for small RIAs to compete necessarily, um, because I think that the smart ones will figure out how to specialize. Okay, I, I like that. I mean, that goes to kind of the doctor idea that you analogy that you were alluding to to earlier, yeah. right? Find your niche and stay in that lane. 
Yeah. Uh, buy or sell. Implementing technology and having technology as part of the client experience enhances the quote white glove experience advisors desire to have with their clients. Uh, I'm going to withhold on that one. Oh. Um, uh, and, and for the same reasons before, you know, it's it's tech is not the silver bullet. It's you have you got to marry tech with process. Um, but it can certainly, I mean, done right, absolutely. Um, but you have to take a much more holistic view than just uh, just tech. I think that in, in kind of the rationale behind that question, I think that where a lot of advisors go, they say they, that tech that they are a white glove firm, and so technology will d- uh, push that away, make them not as white glove. And I think that that is a that is a um, that's a false assumption, and I think that's like a, that's masking the problem of they just don't have the right processes to allow yeah. for that ha- to happen, which is what you're you're alluding to. It seems like as well. Let me let me give you a, a quick uh, uh, a, a quick sort of framework to think about this. Technology is really good at taking massive amounts of data and arriving at some answer or output very quickly. People are very good at nuance. There's a big difference. The two are not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, there's a uh, there's one of my favorite um, sort of f- funny uh, uh, occurrences is in 2014, Google uh, announced that they had built this algorithm that can now uh, predict a picture of a cat with uh, 75% accuracy. And um, I was actually giving a talk a few uh, a few weeks ago. And so I was just searching around trying to figure out, like, you know, how good is Google now? And, um, and uh, you know, the first thing that popped up was, um, you know, Google is 100% certain that this picture of a cat is actually a bowl of guacamole. Uh, and so, you know, five years later, they haven't really made meaningful progress there. And, um, and you say, oh, yeah, you know, that's, hard, that's a hard problem to solve, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, consider a four-year-old can identify the difference between a cat and not a cat with, uh, you know, 100% accuracy. So there is a place for technology, there's a place for humans, um, you know, that the one is not going to hurt the other and the two can greatly complement each other if done right. Yeah, I'm into that. Uh, I, I have seen that cat, uh, that cat type of stuff, uh, the pictures of the cat and identifying that and it is great stuff if you get time to go look at it and Google it. Uh, yeah. Buy or sell, one of the big tech companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, name them, will enter the financial advice space within the next 10 years. Uh, sell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ten years—that's a long time. So you know, never say never. But I think they got enough on their plates uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and I, I just can't imagine that you know you go from uh, you know you go from uh, uh, Instagram likes to providing financial advice. It could be based on Instagram likes. You know, how many people like this? That's what they buy them. I mean, you never know. Uh, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you never know. All right, last one to see if you're a bull or a bear. Buy or sell. The future of fees within our industry. Uh, this is an easy one. Uh, within our industry will look more like subscription Netflix model as opposed to traditional AUM over the next five years. Just say it again. So everybody, if you're tuning in late, you hear it. Right I'm very much, uh, very much uh, buy on this one. I think that the, the, the AUM-based pricing is on the way out. Very good. Uh, Anders, uh, I want to give you some time to, to give a closing thought. I think that your insights and you speak a lot to, to other advisors uh, and give your insight, uh, maybe take a, a minute or two uh, and, and talk to advisors about something that they can do today or tomorrow and implement into their firm right away to push them for, forward in terms of innovating and, and uh, forward ahead of the competition. I'll do my closing thought and then we'll let you get back to your day. Sounds great. 
Yeah, and and this is, uh, I mean, my what when I, was, I was making notes for this. Um, uh, you know, I didn't realize the conversation would go sort of the way it did. So this is going to be repetitive, but. Again, I would say that the key to survival is going to be specialization. Uh, so figuring out what your niche is and then doubling down on it. Um, and I think that one of the things that a lot of advisors are probably not thinking about is that geography is less and less important. Um, so we're a totally virtual company. We have clients in uh, 49 states and we have advisors in 16 states. Um, every video or every meeting is done by video conference. And clients love it. It, it. I think that that is going to become the norm uh, going forward. And so it's totally possible to find a specialization uh, that might not have a huge concentration of clients in your 25 mile radius, um, but around the country, uh, there's a lot of demand for it. And so I would say that, you know, for the advisor that's that's thinking about, you know, that doesn't want to join a large firm or doesn't want to sell um, into, uh, you know, into a consolidator or an aggregator uh, and wants to stay independent, um, figuring out what it is that you're really good at, what you're passionate about, and what you can help clients with uh, sooner rather than later is going to be the key to success. Yeah, I think that that uh, I think that the opportunity uh, and that's an interesting point, right? The opportunity to be a niche provider um, should give every RA that's worried about consolidation or not being able to compete uh, a boost. And I think that that's a great thing for the industry. Um, one of the topics I've been talking a lot about lately is the idea behind Maslow's hierarchy. This is a building block for human behavior based on universal human priorities. Within this model, individuals are constantly striving to meet the needs at each level before moving to the next, kind of like a video game, go from here to there to there. With investors, there's also a hierarchy of needs that is very similar to Maslow's hierarchy. The foundation of that pyramid is trust, and it moves up to the top of the pyramid, which is purpose. Just before purpose is happiness. And the goal of the purpose level is the idea of fulfillment. Maybe you are happy and you've reached that level, but are you fulfilled? Do you have a true sense of purpose? When you reach this level of purpose, you have met your needs on your human priorities, and it's the pinnacle of feelings. What does this mean for advisors? Well, it gives you a roadmap to your relationships. If you are able to truly move up this pyramid and help a client find their true purpose based on their relationship with you, then you not only have impacted a life, but created a lifelong customer. Too often, advisors put their value at the bottom of the pyramid and focus on just the trust or investment management, trusting them to do the investment management, as opposed to finding ways to navigate past the act of investing to the act of advising. And I mean advising towards fulfillment. As an industry, we are in a state of ensuring our clients know our value. And value needs to be defined beyond traditional investment management in order to hold the line on fees while also keeping relationships long term. One way to get to this point is creating capacity for your team to have the time to navigate this journey with each client and provide that value and service by leveraging technology and processes and other services to take things off of your plate and give you time, this will allow for you to focus on moving up the hierarchy and building relationships beyond what you think is possible today. Anders Jones, thanks so much, man. I really do appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat with me today. Yeah, it was great. Really fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. We'll definitely have you back. And next time you're in Atlanta, come into the studio uh, and we'll have you in here as well. And to everybody listening out there, thank you for tuning in and we'll be in your ear in just a couple weeks. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 